Genesis chapter 3. So I've taken the task of trying to get through the book of Genesis in one year, which means that I have to, on a weekly basis, get through a chapter. That's, <laughs> it's very, very hard. Um, but I'm going to try and get through this chapter today. Genesis chapter 3. So we have now, in our account, left the perfection of the creation week. And in that creation week, we are first introduced to the first and primary actor of all creation. We're introduced to God, Elohim, as we're told in Genesis 1.1. And we know certain things to be true of God for one reason alone. Because in his mercy, he has condescended to reveal to us some of his qualities. God is spirit, by nature intangible, John 4.24. God is one, but he exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3.16 and 17. God is infinite, 1 Timothy 1.17. Incomparable. 2 Samuel 7, 22. Unchanging, Malachi 3, 6. God exists everywhere. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Knows everything. Psalm 147, verse 5. He has all power and authority. Revelation 19, 6. God is just. Acts 17, 31. Loving, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. Truthful, John 14, 6. And holy. 1 John 1, 5. God shows compassion, 2 Corinthians 1, um, 3. Mercy, Romans 9, 15. And grace, Romans 5, 17. God judges sin, Psalms 5, 5. And offers forgiveness, Psalms 130, verse 4. But in Genesis 2, 4, we learn something new about this God, this Elohim. We learn his name. Yahweh. And have we seen from the creation account? And once again, this is an account. It's not a story. All things created during this week were made with an end date. All of creation has a shelf life, which is why God began this account with in the beginning. Because all of creation is for the glory of God, and all of creation is a stage which is set by the master creator for the glory of God. And chapter 3 reveals more concerning the intended reason for creation. But this chapter begins differently than the first two chapters of Genesis. Both of those chapters began with God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2.1 and 2, thus the heavens and the, and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. But chapter 3, chapter 3 begins with a serpent. A serpent that we are told was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And once again, God is being very, very specific. Not just specific, but very specific in giving to us not just his title, God, but also his name. 
throughout this entire account. Look through chapter 3 again. Look through this account and see how God speaks of himself through it all. You're going to find that he doesn't shy away from anything that is contained within this account. The Bible specifically says that God, Yahweh Adonai, made the serpent during the creation week. And how he speaks of himself is very important, especially when we hear how he's spoken about by both the serpent and the woman. And we don't know much about this serpent other than Yahweh Adonai created it, that it could talk, and that Adam and Eve didn't think that it was strange that it was talking to them. But there are a few things that we can surmise about this serpent using scripture. The first being that it was a real snake, since Yahweh Adonai cursed this creation specifically. And we can also know that this serpent was being possessed by that fallen angel that used to be Lucifer, but is now Satan. We know from passages such as Matthew 8, 24, or 28 through 34, that demons can inhabit both people and animals. And specifically from Luke 22, 3, we know that Satan can inhabit humans. And we also know from Revelation 12, 9 and John 8, 44, that Satan was the one that was inhabiting the serpent that was speaking to Eve. But before we can unpack what the serpent said, we must deal with the reality of the serpent. And we must deal with sin. Saints, we are going to tread on some very hallowed ground today in dealing with these topics. This has been a, a, lot of, um, a lot of prayer for me in dealing with this because we're going to be dealing with things that the Bible doesn't speak perfectly and clearly about. But if we get into the Bible, and if using the Bible, if we use it correctly, we can determine the truths of these things that God wants us to know. So we don't know how many hours, how many days or weeks have passed since the original creation week, but we do know that all things that were created during that week, including the angels, heaven, and Lucifer, were all created during that week. And we also know that the elect of God had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 tells us that. And we also know that God was able to stand back on day 7, assess everything that he created as it was at that moment. And he said, yes, this is perfect. The stage is set exactly, exactly the way that I desire, which is why he blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from all of his work of creation, Genesis 2, 1 and 2. And we know that God is holy. And not just holy, but holy, 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 as told to us in Revelation 4.8, that there is no darkness in him at all, 1 John 1.5. And we know that Lucifer rebelled at some point between day seven and the day that he spoke to Adam and Eve in the form of the serpent. He sinned. 
But how is that possible? And what exactly is sin? Can you define sin? Because this is very important in our lives with Christ and even our lives with other humans. Can you tell me what sin is? And can you tell me what it is biblically? The reason that this is important, that we have to be able to define sin, is that we need to determine where it came from. In 1 John 3, 4, we're told, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's a definition. But what exactly does that mean? Well, in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. It's the grace of God. That is the righteousness of God bestowed on us through the giving of the Holy Spirit as as it's transformed us and it makes us holy. And in those Titus verses, we read that it trains us to renounce ungodliness, which is lawlessness, as we read in 1 John. And that is sin. Sin is ungodliness. It's unrighteousness. It's lawlessness. And just like all things evil, it's a perversion of the goodness of God, used selfishly, ungodly. It's, ref- it's, what, it's refusing to do what God has commanded, refusing to be what God has commanded. All sin is this. If you think about any sin, you will see that at, it, as its, at its root of all sin is something of God. Something that has been tainted, that has been turned, used in a way or a manner that is ungodly. And this is what sin is. But where did it come from? Since God is holy, perfect. And his creation, all of it was perfect. It was all of him, by him, and even for him. So so where did sin come from? Well, this is where that unclear part comes in. Because we don't know for sure. We don't know from Scripture, or what we do know from Scripture, I'm sorry, is that God, Yahweh Adonai, who is more than perfect, he is holy. And this holy God is able to see that things happen, that things come to pass, that he hates. And we know this because of Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. There we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do... Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take 
place. The treason against God in the murder of the only innocent man to walk the planet was sin. It was the greatest of sins. And God predestined that it would happen. All of it. And at the same time, God is not the author of sin. To explain this, we need to be able to define what perfect means versus what holy means. The biblical definition of perfect means that it is completely the way that it was intended to be in form and function. We can understand this just from the creation account of God, declaring in Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Lucifer, along with the host of heaven, who are created eternal beings, they're spiritual, they're not carnal, not elemental. We know that because of Psalm 148, verses 1 through 5. And they were created before the foundation of the world, Job 38, 4 through 7 tells us. And they were perfect since we know that they dwell in the presence of God. But are they created holy? And are all angels holy? Well, what's holy? What does holy mean? We need to be able to define that. In Revelation 15:4, we hear the host of heaven, those who have been redeemed by God, praising their creator, beginning in verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Yahweh, Adonai, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So God alone is holy. Holy means other than, separate from. But in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 38, in the midst of Jesus telling those that would desire to follow him, Jesus said this, Mark 8, 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory the glory of his Father, with the holy angels. So angels are holy. But are all angels holy? And were they created holy? Well, on another occasion, Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of heaven, as we're told in the gospel account of Matthew, chapter 25. And towards the end of that sermon, Jesus begins to describe the end of the age. Beginning in verse 31, he tells us, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be the gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And at the end of that explanation of the separation between the sheep and the goats. That doesn't happen for angels. But only for humans. He tells us. Then he will say to those on his left. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So who was that fire prepared for? The devil and his angels, which can't be the holy angels that are with Jesus when he is separating the sheep from the goats. So there's a distinction. 
There's a separation between angels and angels. The angels that were created by Yahweh, Adonai. What is that distinction? What's the separation between the angels? Why does God say that some of them are holy and others are Satan's angels and are not holy? When the letter that was penned by Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells the elder Timothy this in 1 Timothy 5.21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, here is the distinction between angels. There are elect angels, those that remain in the presence of God, those that are called holy because they are in the presence of God, because they are of the elect. Those that are not of the elect, are not holy. They are still eternal. They are still angels, still eternal beings, but they are not holy. And why is this? What is that one determining, defining thing? Well, it's the election of God, most certainly. This is the explanation of the distinction between the angels. But that doesn't explain to us, though, where sin came from. So where, where does sin come from? Well, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. Isaiah, chapter 63. We know and we hold that all Scripture is, in, is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. But we also need to understand that not everything that is in the scriptures, as it's related to us, not everything is true. A great example of this is those arguments made to Job by his so-called friends concerning his sin and even the character of God. What is told to us there in Job, those things that they said, those are factual accounts of what they said, but they weren't true as God told us and is related to us in Job chapter 42. What they said of God and even what they said of Job was not true. Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. The reason I'm going there is because we need to understand is that there are things in the Bible that are said about God that are not true. And God points that out to us when that happens. But there is never a single time in the book of Isaiah that God rebukes Isaiah for saying something that is not true about him. And in the 63rd chapter of Isaiah, we're told by the prophet Isaiah, praying to God, he begins in verse 15, he says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Yahweh, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And then in the midst of this prayer, 
Isaiah proclaims in verse 17. O Yahweh, why do you make us wander? Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we don't fear you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Did you, did you just read that? Did you hear that? Did you grasp what Isaiah just said to God about God, Yahweh? Why did you make us wander from your ways? Why do you harden our hearts so that you, we don't fear you? The prophet Isaiah ascribed to God the ultimate causality for the wandering of Israel. And how does Isaiah say that God does this? The last part of verse 17 gives us that answer. His presence had left. And he pleads that the Lord will return to them. And then nine verses later, the prophet Isaiah once again says to God, verse 7 of, of chapter 64, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. What, again, what is the explanation that is given us to why these people do not call on the name of the Lord? What is it that is missing that causes these people to melt in the hand of their iniquities? It's the absence of God. Understanding that it is the absence of God that is the defining thing between holy and unholy is a biblical concept. It's one that is widely understood and accepted in the salvation of sinners. Outside of God, you are unholy. 1 Timothy 1.9 In God, you are holy. Colossians 1.21-23 And through the reading of the fall of Lucifer given to us in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, an understanding of how a perfect created being can sin is given to us. In verses 15 through 16, we are told of him. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Ungodliness, lawlessness. That's verse 15. And what is it that we're told that unrighteousness is? It is that thing which we are told Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God is revealed against. It's ungodliness. It's the absence of God. And in the absence of God, verse 16 happens. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. Here is original sin. And it is this sin that leads us to our account, as told to us in the third chapter of Genesis. And now that we have these definitions, let us begin to look at the account of the original sin in man, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. In verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And as I said, just said of sin, that it's a perversion of anything godly, this point is being made very clear by the opening salvo of this serpent to Eve. He uses the word of God, or at least part of it, against God. This was new then, but it has never stopped since. Men and women to this day will use the word of God exactly in the same way, unrighteously, sinfully, to get what they desire. Did God actually say that a woman can't be an elder? I mean, wasn't that just a cultural norm at that time? I mean, and, and wasn't Paul just a man? Oh, there's no New Testament prohibition against homosexuality. That was just that man, Paul again. Jesus never said that. Read what the serpent said to Eve. And you will see how the deceiver uses the truth of God wrongly. God said in Genesis 2, verse 16, you may, eat, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And you see how now Satan has taken the blessing of God and the giving of all good things with just a single prohibition and then turns it into stinginess, turns it into a burdensome, confining law. And as I pointed out earlier, it was Yahweh Adonai who gave this command to Adam. To Adam. But the statement made by the serpent didn't use his name, which represents his character. It only uses his title. And the response by Eve back to the serpent is telling as well. Her response back to him was to, to speak of God in the exact same manner that the serpent did even though she knew the name of God. And then she reveals to us that Adam had to know what death meant when the warning of the tree was given to him. If he didn't understand what death meant, he would never have given greater, stricter prohibition around that tree. He must have told Eve that God had told him, don't eat of that tree, don't even touch that tree. Matter of fact, don't even look at that tree. Okay, he didn't say that last part, but you get my, what I'm saying. And that Adam must have told her this. We, we know that Adam had to have told her this because he was standing right alongside of her the whole time. And then the serpent does what all sinners do. He blasphemes the name and the character of God. He tells the woman who must have been watching him handle this fruit, that God is a liar and that he's not good. He's holding something back from you, Eve, something that you deserve to have. You deserve to be like God. And then we come to what is called the fall of man, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Throughout this account, we see God acting. We hear of his protection, judgment, and even provision from, for Adam and Eve, even after they have sinned. 
But it's not without intent that God is not mentioned in verse 6. He was not part or party of verse 6. Eve used the God-given attributes of being created in the image of God to discern that that fruit looked good and that it was desirable. And then she decided to eat it. But we are never told in the Bible that this was sin. She was deceived, as we're told in 1 Timothy 2.14. And as she had readily admits to God in verse 13 of this chapter, but then we're told that she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And this is when all humanity died. This is where and when we were separated from God, when we committed suicide of the soul, did irreparable damage to the image of God with which we were created. We are told how sin works in the book of James, chapter 1. There we read, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Verses 13 through 15. The account of Adam's sin follows this progression to the T. He was tempted by the fruit, by the serpent, by Eve. And none of this was sin. And that God had made that tree, that fruit, and even Eve, none of that was evil. And that he had commanded Adam not to eat of that tree was not evil. Even if it was a temptation to Adam. The temptation is of and in itself not even evil. It was the desire within Adam. The desire for that which God did not give that James says is what works with his desire and lust, which then conceives and gives, uh, gives birth to sin, which once it occurs brings death. So what was the sin of Adam? It was what 1 John 3, 4 tells us it is. Sin is lawlessness. It's going against anything that God says. It's anti-God. It's actually thinking. I know better than God. Adam's sin was loving the gift of Yahweh Adonai more than loving Yahweh Adonai. What Adam should have done is he should have told Eve the truth about the command of God and not added to it. Adam should not have been anywhere near that tree. He should have stepped between Adam or between Eve and that serpent. And he should have defended the truth and the character of God, the name of God, to both that serpent and to Eve. And he should have loved God more than he did Eve. And the last three words of verse 6 is sin. And he ate. And this is what's commonly called the fall of man. But man didn't fall. He jumped. And calling it the fall, that sounds like it was an accident. Al Adam, he saw that cliff, and he took a running jump at it. He willfully chose to sin. 
But what happened after he sinned? Verses 7 and 8. When the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They didn't die. At least not the kind or type of death that Adam was aware of at that time. Instead, their eyes were opened. And the first thing that they became aware of was themselves. They became self-aware. And they, in that moment, decided that the way that God had made them needed to be altered. It wasn't the way that it should be. And in their self-awareness, they realized that for the first time ever, they were separated from God. They realized that something more than just being aware that they were naked had happened. For the first time ever, they were afraid of God, so they hid from him. But once again, take note of who the Bible says that they hid from, Yahweh Adonai. And then verses 9 through 11 relate the encounter by this Yahweh Adonai with Adam. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did you notice that God wasn't addressing Eve here? And husbands, men, be aware of this truth. You may desire to shirk that responsibility of being accountable in life, but you will be accountable for all those things that the Lord has given you, including your wife and your children and also the gifts of God. And then the first excuse was conceived in sin, from sin. Verse 12, the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Adam blamed God. And then he blamed Eve. He said of God, you know that gift that you gave me? It wasn't good. It was tainted. It wasn't all that I desired like you said it was going to be. And husbands, do you realize that when you talk trash about your wife, to anybody, to your friends, to your relatives, to anybody, that you are saying the exact same thing? And then Adam blamed the gift, his helpmate. It's her fault. And then we come to verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The woman told the truth. Even after sin entered humanity, this woman still had more character and moral, uh, more moral uprightness than Adam did. And then we come to the consequences part of our sermon. Verses 14 through 19 are the judgment of God on the parties that were involved with this treason, all of them. 
And once again, we are told specifically, it's Yahweh Adonai that is pronouncing these judgments. And the first deals with the serpent, the actual physical being that is the serpent, and then the serpent, Satan, who's possessing this serpent. Verse 14 is the physical judgment on the physical creature. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15 is the spiritual judgment and the proto-evangelical of the reality of the reason for all of creation. God says there, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to circle back to these verses in a few minutes, but first let's finish the rest of our text today. Verse 16, the woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till the return, you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God is the just and the justifier. And because of holiness, his holiness, he must punish sin. And he cast Satan out of heaven along with his angels, locked them in a place of eternal fire, prepared for them before the foundation of the world. And he promised death to Adam. And he cursed the serpent and Satan. And he told Eve that she would have pain in the creation of new life and that the relationship between her and Adam would never again be as it was intended. And husbands, wives, if you ever wonder why your relationship is as contentious as it is, it's right here. And he cursed the ground because of the sin of Adam. And this is the revelation of the reality of what the holiness of God is. Because he is holy and because the perfect creation was no longer perfect, sin had entered into the created realm through the created in the image of God man and now is no longer perfect. It was no longer very good and it was no longer blessed as we are told in chapter 2 verse 3. It's now cursed. But Adam didn't die. Or did he? The last four verses of this chapter are very significant in understanding the truth and the consequences that God told Adam would happen on the day that he ate of this tree. Let's look at verses 20 through 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now before God created in Adam, the desire for that helpmate. He had brought every animal before the man, and he told him to name them all, which he did. And it was on the heels of this that God took a rib from Adam and made a helpmate for Adam, which Adam called 
woman. No name given, just woman. We're meant to raise an eyebrow over the fact that in the perfect garden setting, prior to sitting, Adam hadn't named his wife. He named every other animal and called them by those names. And in a sense, he must have looked at this woman as the same as the rest of those created animals, worthy of a name, but not worthy of being named. I mean, he had named the donkeys, and he called them donkey. And he named the woman, and he called her woman. That's what she was, just as those animals are exactly as they are. But it isn't until after the sin of Adam, after the separation between him and Yahweh Adonai, because of his own sin, and even after the just judgments have just been handed down by God, that Adam turned and looked at that woman and named her Eve. In verse 6, Adam sinned and died. And then in verse 20, we are meant to see that Adam had hope in the promise of a Redeemer. Adam had separated himself from God. He, for the first time, understands that he is no longer one with his Creator, that he is separate from him, and that the wages of sin are death, and that this death is far worse than the physical death that he understood before. But it's, it's significant that it, it is until after sinning, after being confronted by God of his sin, and after the judgment of God on him, that Adam then names the helpmate, the very one that he just threw under the bus. And the name that he gives her is significant, just as his name is significant, just as the name of God is significant. He names her Eve. And her name means life. Prior to this sin, in his sin, and even though he had been told that he could eat of the tree of life, he had never thought of any significance of that giving of that helpmate to him and that she could reproduce. And once again, we're never told how long after the creation week that this event in chapter 3 occurs. So we don't know if Adam had actually seen other animals reproduce after their kind or not. And since both he and the woman had up to this point enjoyed intimate relationship with this Yahweh, Yahweh Adonai, Adam had never given any thought to the significance of children. But it wasn't until after the curse placed upon Satan and the promise of a redeemer that would come from this woman that Adam understood the significance of children, the significance of woman. He had separated himself from God, brought sin into this world, and yet he had hope. And the hope, the thing that he hoped in, were in the words of God. He hoped in the redemption of the relationship that he had murdered when he had acted ungodly, unrighteously, unlawfully, and eating that which he had been forbidden from. And somehow, somehow, and only God knows how, God had placed in Adam hope. And in hope, 
Adam finally completely finished the task that he had been given during the creation week. He named her. God created man, and that's what we are. But then he named this man after what is our nature, dirt, Adam. God created woman, and this is what she is, made from man, still dirt. But in her, through her, Adam found hope. And he found hope in the God that promised the redemption of the soul that he had murdered when he sinned. Adam named the woman after what he believed was her nature. He named her life because she is the mother of all living. And in a very real sense, she is this. Adam and Eve are all of us. They're our parents. But let's finish our text to understand this better. In verse 22, we're transported out of the creation and into the creator. There in verse 22, we read, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live for Adam forever. So Adam and Eve may have grown in their understanding of things, but they had both regressed in the morality or perfection that they had been created in. We aren't meant to look at this verse in God saying that they had become like him as a step up. Because in fact, it was a huge leap down. It was a separation from him. God is wisdom. Adam now had knowledge. Verses 23 and 24 are important in grasping the reason and reality of this account. Therefore, the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim, one of his angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And now, and now, the stage has been fully set. And it ends focusing once again on that tree of life. The actors on this stage have all now been revealed to us. We have Yahweh Adonai, we have Satan, and we have man. And Adam has died. He committed eternal spiritual suicide through his sin, which is unrighteousness, ungodliness, anti-God. And all of this was intended. This was all the intended purpose of creation, which is evidenced by the last verse from today. Man now needed to die. He was driven from the garden. The command by God to Adam still remained, work and care for the land. But because of his sin, because of your sin, all of creation is tainted, and that needs redeeming as well. And Adam was dead and needed to stay dead, because if he ate of that tree of life, he would remain alive in his deadness for all eternity. He would remain outside of God, anti-God, cursed by God. There would be no hope for him. But there is hope. And we see the hope of Adam revealed in the naming of that woman, Eve. 
In believing the truth given by Yahweh, Adonai, to that serpent, to Satan, that a redeemer will crush his head. This is now when we are to look at that promise of that redeemer that was given man in the giving of that curse to Satan. In verse 15, we are told that God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And Adam was standing there for all of this, as was the woman. And when the creator of all things pronounced a curse on the deceiver, the hope for humanity was not found in Adam. He brought sin and death. One that would come from the woman, though, would bring righteousness and life. And saints, so do you realize that the enmity between that God, um, that God placed between Satan and that woman, between her offspring and his, is manifested in humans? You realize that? Every person ever born of woman of the woman named Eve, is human, every single one of us. We are all of one single race, but we are not of the same family. There is enmity within humanity that was brought about by the sin of Adam, and it's not racial, because there is only one race. All hostility within the human race is because of sin. And before there was the first child conceived in the womb, we are told that there is a predisposition between the children of man. Some is going to be of her offspring, and others will be of Satan, even though they're both humans. And this is the very thing that Jesus spoke of over and again, such as when he told those that held that they were of the children of God. He said to them, you were from below, I am from above. You were of this world, I am not of this world, John 8, 23. And then a few verses later, Jesus said to them, if, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are, are your father, the devil, and, you will, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. Verses 42 through 47. But Adam, Adam heard that word of God. And he hoped in it. He named that woman Eve. And he couldn't have done this, placing his hope in her because she could have children. Because natural children can't elongate the life of a person, of a man. Can't redeem a man. His only hope was found in the one that was promised that would crush the head of that serpent. Every human that has been born, with the exception of Jesus, was born separated, alienated from God, and was born of the family of Satan. Until, 
until God redeemed him through his son, the promised one. And this was his plan all along. Saints, listen to our blessed hope, the only hope for all mankind. The only hope, the one hope that predates sin, predates creation. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When were you saved? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy, blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Adam heard the word of God and he believed and he acted in that belief. And saints, if you have heard the word of God and have believed and have acted in that belief, then rejoice. And if you have not acted in belief on the word of God, the one that you can hear, do so now. So that you can be moved from the family of Satan into the family of God. That you can rejoice with the saints forevermore. All to the glory of Yahweh Adonai. Let's pray.